Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with Lyle and... Joelle. Good morning everyone. Joelle, how are you this morning? I'm good. It's Thursday. It's a good day. Why is Thursday a good day? Because it means the week is almost finished. <laughs> the weekend is coming. Okay, so you passed hump day. You're on the downhill slide to the weekend. Yes. What are you looking forward to on the weekend? Oh, we have a baptism. Sorry, at my church this coming Sabbath. Um, It's going to be really cold because we're going to the beach. But it's going to be a time for celebration in any case. Yes, absolutely. And this is actually my church's third week having baptisms. So it's just been amazing to see people we know just dedicating themselves to God. And your church, I believe your church is worshipping as a congregation this week? Yeah, this is going to be the first Sabbath back. So quite exciting. It's a bit weird, though, because all the chairs are separated. So in in order to keep with regulations, of course. But it's just a little strange, but still, we're happy to just be back together again. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic news. Uh, Well, I have some positive news this morning. I had some uh, rather negative news yesterday that I didn't share on radio. And my father-in-law was in hospital with heart failure. I'm so sorry. Um, Only 20% of his heart was working. He has um, since obviously seen the doctors. They have pronounced that he's in a good position to recover. They have begun initial retreatments and he is responding exceptionally well. Oh, that's good to hear. And my father-in-law is like the most awesome person on the planet. Um, Kind of... Yeah, just can't say enough about what an amazing person is and and an inspiration, both as a person and spiritually. Um, And so, yeah, keep him in prayers. Long way to go yet, but very, very positive signs so far. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. What is happening in the world of... Positively different news, Joel. Different news. You were saying that it was a bit harder to find good news these days. Yeah, it is. It but is. But it's still possible. Wonderful. Um, so there's this man by the name of Greg Daly, and he's from New Jersey in the States, and he's a business owner. So he actually owns a frame shop. But because of um, what's been happening with the coronavirus, his business had to close and has been closed since the, um, the end of March. Um, But thankfully, he actually has a second job, which is delivering newspapers. And this is something he's done for 25 years. Isn't that the kind of job that people just sort of, you know, uh, kids used to do, ride around their bikes and deliver newspapers and that kind of... He's doing this for 25 years. Did he start out when he was a kid? Probably. Yeah. And he just just kept going. And he just keeps going. It's a good thing he did because he had a backup when coronavirus came around. Absolutely. So he's quite used to waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning um, to deliver the newspapers. We know the feeling. <laughs> I Yes, I definitely do now. Um, so now with his job, it's actually been his main source of income um, because he's other business closed. But it also enabled him to figure out a way to be more generous, which was quite interesting. So how it all started was he was doing his roots, um, delivering newspapers, and one of the ladies he was delivering to, she's 88 years old, and she asked him, oh, can't you please throw the newspaper a little closer to my house Um, so she didn't have to walk um, so far in the driveway um, to get the newspaper. And he obviously said, yeah, that's fine. And he did that from then on. 
But then a few days later, he was um, in the supermarket and he thought of her again. And he thought, you know, if she can't even walk just a short distance to get the newspaper. Is she even getting groceries? Like, how is she able to do that? So he decides to call her and say, hey, do you need any groceries? Can I get anything for you? Um, and she was so thankful for him asking. And she said, yes, please get me something. And also she asked for something for her neighbor across the street. And this really got him thinking about how many senior citizens he had um, on his newspaper route. So he was like, maybe he can make a difference um, this way. So the next day or so, he, um, with each newspaper that he delivered, he attached a little note to um, his newspaper customers and he said who he was and he said that he would do people's grocery shopping free of charge. They just had to let him know if they would be interested in, in that offer. So it turned out that there was such a need um, in his community that his wife, his three children, and his mother-in-law eventually had to start helping him um, do groceries for senior citizens. And they had to do many, many shopping trips. His daughter even had to make a spreadsheet um, just to keep track of all the orders and what people wanted. And um, of course, not everyone's very good with technology um, in order to send an email or call him. So they still just leave a note at their door for him to look at. Um, and so his day is actually quite busy. He does his newspaper job in the morning and then until like 7 p.m. that night, He's just busy with deliveries. Um, That's him amazing. And his family. And they haven't been able to take a break um, hardly. And he's made over 500 trips to the supermarket. I don't know how much you love That's going phenomenal. To I hate going to the supermarket. I do as well. So I can't imagine um, all of that effort that he's making. But he says, even though it is obviously a bit grueling, he finds so much satisfaction in doing it. Um, and he's even connected with a local charity so that other people can start doing something very similar to that. So I thought that was so cool, you know, um, just looking at the opportunity that you can take to help people in need. Um, and here he definitely has made a great change in, in his neighborhood. That's a fantastic story. And, you know, we hope that obviously by connecting with a local charity that that's able to continue once his frame shop starts Absolutely. to uh, fire back up again with the lifting of restrictions. Um, and yeah, if only more of us did these kinds of things in our community, we are surrounded by opportunities to help Definitely. other people and so much more blessings in giving than receiving. Definitely. And it's making me think, you know, what more can I do? It doesn't need to yeah. be really big. And yesterday I think we spoke about just calling someone, just seeing how your friends and family are doing. So we really can make a difference if we take the time out to look. Fantastic. What else is uh, happening in the world of positively different news? All right. Well, I have a story from um, South Africa this time. So in response to the coronavirus, um, a non-profit organization started and they're called Chefs with Compassion. And they started early April and their initiative is really just to provide meals to vulnerable communities in South Africa especially during this time when a lot of people have become unemployed. Um, it's not that easy to maybe go to the supermarkets. But what their principle is, is to use food that would usually go to waste. So um, South Africa produces about 31 million tons of food. And of that, about 10 million tons, which is 
um, 44% of consists of vegetables and fruit actually is wasted. Um, so there's definitely a lot going to waste. So they use all of that and um, really skilled chefs, volunteers um, and restaurateurs get together, make these incredible meals like stews and curries and give them to a variety of organizations who are in the communities um, reaching those who really need the help. And with volunteers, there's over 300 of them who are just, again, dedicating their time and skills and energy to this cause. And interestingly enough, I found this so cool. In the first week of starting this initiative, they provided just over 2,000 meals. And by the seventh week, it already reached over 42,000 meals. So you can just see that the need was extremely great. Um, and this is something that they really want to continue after COVID-19 because in South Africa, we have a really large hospitality sector. So we have the skills, um, but then on the other hand, we also have extreme hunger. So this initiative is really um, bridging the gap of let's use food that would usually go to waste, let's use the skills we have, and let's give it to those in need as well. So a really great initiative, um, and it'll be interesting to see how it continues in the future, just reaching out to those who really need it um, at this time especially. Yeah, fantastic. Great stuff there, uh, Joelle. Thank you so much for sharing with us um, some positively different news, and it's great to see people's needs being supplied in times of difficulty. And of course, there are so many other people in our community whose needs are not supplied, and you know, particularly in our global community. So let's all take some time today to look for ways in which we can help other people around us. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Joining us on the phone this morning is Daniel Collier. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel. Good morning. Yes, got you. Okay. We couldn't hear you there for a second. Um, Now, Daniel Collier is a um, person recently retired from the police force and currently studying for ministry. Uh, Daniel, we had you on last week to get some insights into policing and... um, And to try and wrap our heads around, you know, some of the things that took place in the United States that just seem to make kind of absolutely no sense at all as far as what happened with this George Floyd incident and of course it has created you know a tremendous amount of um, angst right around the world um, globally mm, certainly so Daniel there's a couple of questions that are, are that sort of came that have popped up since then and that is dealing with I'm wondering whether you can comment on the process of what took place and so the process and of course we understand that practices are going to be different in Australia to the United States but I wouldn't think between these two countries that they would be massively different if you are at the scene of an arrest where somebody is uh, becomes unconscious for whatever reason what's the normal procedure that you would follow in that situation yeah, look, I just want to start by saying I've got a bit of a cold this morning, so I'm going to sound a little bit whinier than usual. <laughs> um, we will, we will forgive you. <laughs> I appreciate that. In, in the circumstance of that, we, I had a circumstance one time, we arrested this person who faked a seizure. Uh, they fell to the ground and they were shaking, and I was relatively new in the job, so I, I freaked out thinking, oh, no, we're going to be in trouble because this guy's going to die in our, in our custody. So I quickly jumped on the radar and said, we need an ambulance here, and uh, ambulance just turned up. And they were able to determine that he'd faked it. 
um, because they were able to use pressure points to, to press on him in different places, on his hands and on his fingers, and other things, and he reacted to it. If he was having a legitimate seizure, he wouldn't have reacted to it. Um, but the, the feeling I had straight away was one of complete apprehension and fear that we were going to be blamed for this person's death. And generally, if there's some kind of circumstance where somebody's injured, the first thing we do, because we have, we have direct radio contact, essentially, with ambulance and, and fireys. We can talk to our radio systems, and they will contact their, their ambulance and fireys straight away and be able to get us a response in a very short amount of time. And if police are calling something urgent, we become a priority, which is great, <clears throat> because we don't do that unless it is a necessity. And so the ambos are able to come out and assist with medical uh, issues which we aren't necessarily trained to do. We have a very basic first aid training that a lot of places do and if somebody's found unconscious, put them in the recovery position and clear their airway and, and do the acronym which changes every couple of years, the D-R-A-S-B, whatever it is now. And so we do have the capacity to be able to help people to a degree but we will wait for the medical professionals to make the call. At an incident we went to a house where a husband had severely assaulted his wife and she was unconscious on the floor in a pool of blood and we ran in the friend said you need to help her and I knew the ambulance was right outside us I'm not, I'm not touching it because I don't I don't know how to deal with that side of it my side of it is dealing with what's actually happened so we went and found the um, the offender and let the ambos take care of the unconscious person but in regards to this one it, like all, all incidents like that it would be if somebody died in custody it would become a critical incident and so an investigation would have to take place the officer's may or may not be stood down depending on the actual circumstances of it. So they may be given some uh, leave with pay or time off or um, stood down from duties for a time being while the investigation takes place, which I think a lot of people just jump to a lot of conclusions surrounding this one in America straight up. They, they jumped on this, it's racist, it's police brutality, whatever it is, without waiting for an investigation to happen. I think a lot of the times they can paint a negative... And I'm not saying that's the case in this one, but a lot of times when things like that happen, they can paint the whole case into something very negative when an investigation hasn't happened and we're not too sure 100% what the facts are. For sure. Now, okay, well, let's let's go up a level and let's say that somebody does die at the scene of an, uh, of an arrest. Um, what would the procedure be there? Do you just throw them in the back of an ambulance and sort of clear the site as quickly as possible? Um, how does what what would be the normal procedure in that kind of circumstance? And and you know from what you've seen, was it was it? Do you think it was normal what happened in this case? Yeah, the, the normal procedure would be it becomes a crime scene. So police have powers whenever there's essentially any crime, and this is something that's really not utilised enough. Is that when a, a crime occurs, you have the capacity and the power to be able to make a crime scene of an area especially in a public place. You can do it in a private place, but sometimes it requires a little bit more uh, arm-twisting, leg work, contacting uh, magistrates if necessary in order to get actual orders to make something a crime scene. But you can determine the area of a crime scene and tape it off. And inform people it's a crime scene. If they enter that area, they may be committing further offences because you're trying to preserve evidence of what's happened. So in Cessnock, um, during the time that I worked there and, and when I was at Maitland as well, there were a few stabbings that happened between people and one was in the main street assessment down in the, the corner just outside the police station funnily enough and that whole entire section of Cessnock first thing in the, it happened overnight first thing in the morning it was cordoned up as a crime scene and you had major traffic congestion in all directions because it was a main thoroughfare it was essentially the main intersection of town that 
everybody would pass through when going to work. Uh, but they, they were able to section off the whole area because they needed to preserve the evidence for the crime scene. That's the same thing that should have happened here straight away is that somebody died in custody, you wouldn't move the body, you would have left the body there, you would have left it in situ, which means it's Latin for in the situation where it is, so it could be investigated properly and find out what's actually occurred for the quote-unquote EMS people to come in and take the take the body away and handle it such a way that they did makes me question whether or not they were legitimately from a medical professionally trained background or, or emergency services. Yeah, it certainly raises some questions in my mind um, as to yeah exactly what was happening there. Um, something else I wanted to talk about was understanding the you know the totality of circumstances, and I think this is something that is often missed in the media. Um, when you are travelling to you know say for instance you know an event like this happens, a call comes through to you. You're out in the patrol car, whatever, and you are travelling to the scene of where a crime has been committed. How much information does do the police endeavour to give to you? Do they try? You know, are, are they able to give you, or do they try and give you as much information as possible, or is it a situation like it's like there's been a counterfeit uh, money used at such and such an address? Head over there. Uh, a lot of the times, it's just they'll call for another car if there's an arresting an arresting team and then there's a transport team. Like the arresting team might need to stay behind to gather further evidence, speak to witnesses canvas the area for, for, for more clues and if an arrest team turns up it's basically just come and get a car here to transport your secondary car turns up you say this is XYZ person they've done this can you take them back we'll be back soon and then it just becomes a transport issue in this circumstance I mean and, and calling for backup it's everything depends on the actual circumstance of itself we uh, I was working with one of my mates out at uh, back assessed up one time and there's a lady that was highly intoxicated and her family called saying, oh, she's trying to hurt herself. So we've rushed over there, lights and sirens turned up and she was just passed out drunk on the ambulance skirney. So I've got on the radio and said, look, there's no issue. Don't worry, no other cars need to come here. And I put a real sarcastic tone on it because I was quite frustrated at the job at that time and got sick of wasting my time in incidents like this where people just couldn't control their, their actions, mostly due to alcohol and drugs. I said, there's no reason for any other car to turn up. And almost as soon as I turned around, the husband ran out yelling, she's got a knife. So we've had to run back inside because the ambulance officers had her in their custody but had walked away. So she's jumped up and grabbed a knife from the kitchen, held it to her throat, and the whole situation escalated quite quickly. Um, she ended up getting hit with the taser, but it didn't connect, so I sprayed her in the face with the OC spray, and she dropped the knife and fell to the ground and we able to pick her up and take her outside and get her decontaminated and take her up to the hospital for a mental health circumstance. Like, you, you never know what's going to happen and how things are going to change drastically. So after that occurred, I had to get back on the radio and say, yeah, look, we're going to need another car here. Um, Taser's been deployed. Spray's been used. And so it, it, it went from being literally nothing 20 seconds earlier to everything's happened, all hell's broken loose. So... With the introduction of coded police radios recently, there has been a circumstance for more information to be given over the air, but quite often if there's something that's of a high level or high risk when it comes to information, you can actually put on the computer system not for broadcast. And so instead of putting it over the radio and over the air, we'll actually end up phoning each other and contacting each other or meeting up somewhere 
and having a talk before we actually go to to a particular situation or an incident. If we consider this particular situation where you're dealing with a very large individual who has a very long rap sheet, um, has you know previously spent, um, I think it was been in prison five or six times in the past. The last stint was five years for holding a gun to the head of a, a pregnant woman while his friends ransacked a house um, and who is clearly very drug affected. How does that affect your thinking as a police officer going to a scene like that with that kind of knowledge? You always have to be on guard, like 100% of the time. Even victims, who, people who claim to be victims when they call you up can sometimes turn into offenders and try to assault you because they don't like the outcome of what you're dealing with. But having that kind of intel beforehand is wonderful, which it, it, it always happens. As soon as you've got somebody calling up, the radio is able to do a check on them and provide their information on our computer systems so we have an idea of who we're actually dealing with at the time. Uh, we had a job one time at uh, out the back of Maitland. There was a, a guy there who had previously murdered somebody and he'd been involved in an incident with his uh, domestic incident with his kid. And the kid said, our oh, dad's got knives in the house so we, we utilise that information plus the fact that he had previous violent um, things in the past and then other information we had at the time as well and took a couple of cars which obviously drew the attention of the neighbours because people were walking out wondering what was going on why there's three cop cars and six police standing around in the front lawn of this person's house and the whole thing ended up just being a conversation on the couch there was nothing to it but you don't ever take chances those sorts of things if you're going somewhere you know it's going to be a hairy or high risk situation you always endeavour to take backup so that the, the more presence of police the more people that are there to assist you the better chance to quell that behaviour and sort of de-escalate a situation with, with, with bringing somebody taking somebody into custody you talk about calling backup how challenging can it be to place a person in custody who obviously doesn't want to be placed in custody you know if there's just the two of you um, obviously, there are times when you have four of you. Um, assume, you know, presumably, once a pe- person's got the handcuffs on, they're probably pretty subdued. Um, how, how, how challenging? You know, if you've got two people, if it's two against one, isn't isn't that going to be enough? You'd think so, but when people genuinely uh, feel like they're fighting for their life, they can get pretty nasty, and they can get a, a burst of adrenaline and strength which you would not necessarily associate with them and so people don't have this don't have an understanding really of what being in custody is and what being arrested is people think arrested is you're under arrest you're handcuffed your liberty is deprived your freedom's deprived you're thrown in the back of the truck you're taken back to the police station you can quite very well arrest somebody in the middle of the street for an offense deal with them in five minutes and then say as part of law enforcement powers and responsibilities acts in a particular section, I'm discontinuing this arrest, you're free to go. The police have the power to do that out on the street. They can arrest somebody, deal with it, let them go. It's only if it requires a more broad investigation or they might need to be interviewed electronically or there's offences which deem they need to be locked up that they actually end up being arrested and taken back. In the circumstance of people, two cops versus one person, I mean, it depends on the person, quite honestly. Uh, we've had kids that carried on, absolutely, like 12-year-old kids on drugs carrying on that you would not expect to um, fight the way that they fought. And you'd only bring other cars in as a sort of circumstance of having 
more police presence to potentially deter them from wanting to carry on and extra people in case there's a need for safety. I mean, the more hands-on, the better, essentially, most of the time. Um, a lot of people have an aversion to being arrested or placed in custody, but the process is much easier if they sort of roll with it, if they go along with it, if they're arrested. Like, it's getting to a point where if police are genuinely arresting somebody, it's not going to stop. There's 15,000 statewide. So it doesn't matter how much they resist or try and get away. Police will get them. Police will arrest them and take them back for whatever reason. An easier circumstance is to roll with the punches, go back, go through the processes of it all, because if it turns out to be an unlawful arrest, then that can come up to court and you can utilise that in favour of saying, well, none of this none of this works because the arrest was unlawful and have the conviction overturned and then counter-sue the police for a wrongful arrest. Like, it's not something they do lightly. It's not something they do with every job. They don't just walk out and say, uh, you run a red light and stops, or run a stop sign, you're under arrest. Yeah, the, the circumstances of arrest come down to incidents that only require them. It's, it's, it's not something they just throw out there willy-nilly. Sure. Daniel Collier, thank you so much for joining us here on uh, Faith FM this morning. Your insights are always incredibly valuable into uh, how the police force does work. This is Andrew yeah, Peterson. the chance. You're, you're welcome. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, you know what time it is? Question of the day. All right, so Lyle, I was having devotions this morning and I was reading through Numbers chapter 9 um, and I was talking about how the cloud um, covered the sanctuary when the Israelites had to move from place to place. But um, chapter 9 verse 16 says, So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So I've always heard that it was a cloud by day and fire by night. So when it says appearance of fire, is that different than just actual fire or is it the same thing okay that's a that's a really good question let me pose a couple of questions if a cloud catches on fire how long does it burn for joelle is shaking her head she is puzzled right now (laughs) okay do clouds have you ever seen a cloud ignite? No. You've never seen that happen? No. Okay. So this is, this is going to be the first point that I'm going to raise in answering this question. We are dealing with physics here, if it is physics, mm-hmm. that we do not understand. Okay. This is something that is supernatural. And when the supernatural takes place, we always describe the supernatural using natural language. Mm. And natural language is often incompetent in being able to describe the supernatural. Okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, There are a couple of places in the Bible where you will find a description of the throne room of God. And if you go to Revelation chapter 4, Let's flick over to Revelation chapter 4 very quickly. Revelation 4. I don't know whether they've got time for all of this, but we'll see how much we can squeeze in. Uh, Revelation 4. And if we read here, 
Uh, verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the middle of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. So we, we're given a description of four different creatures here. Um, what are some of the salient points that jump out here from these four creatures? What are some of the important highlights? How many different animals do we have? Three, four. Four. And one is like, a, what, what are they like? Look, what do they look like? A lion, a calf, a man, and a flying eagle. If you were to just read John's account, you would say that there are four individual creatures. Mm-hmm. You would also say that those four individual creatures are full of eyes. Yes. Okay. If you read Ezekiel's account, you're going to find that he gives, a, he gives like two chapters where John gives three verses. And he goes into great detail. And you're going to find that each one of these creatures had four faces. Oh, wow. And you're going to find that the wheels, the, the, sorry, the, the, the creatures that are full of eyes are wheels that are associated with the creatures that have four faces. Interesting. And so when you compare the two accounts, you've got one is a much more detailed account, mm-hmm. one is a much more cursory account. But at the same time, can you really picture that in your head? No, no. I'm trying, but I, I can't. That's right, because we're dealing with something that is supernatural and we're trying to describe something supernatural using natural language. Because we're trying, this is an attempt to describe the throne room of God. Okay, so let's say that we were to do something much easier than this. And we were to launch Ezekiel out of his day down to our day. And in doing so, we were to you know, give him a bit, a bit of a tour around Newcastle. Uh, maybe fly him up to the Gold Coast and back, mm. show him some of our technology, and then say, okay, go back to your day and write about it. Does he have the language with which to describe what he's seeing? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. And that's exactly what you've got happening with the pillar of fire. The best way to describe it is the way the Bible has done so, as a pillar of fire mm-hmm. but or a cloud of fire. We don't see clouds catch on fire and ignite and then turn back to cloud, and then ignite again the next night. Hmm. We've never seen that happen. So is it fire? Does it just look like fire? Well, the best way to describe it is as fire. (laughs) And how God did it, we will one day ask.